Some of us struggle to hit all the notes and so we're standing. <laughs> it's a good hymn. I, I walked by Bob and I pointed at the list of hymns and I said, they're playing your song, Bob. That's my favorite, favorite hymn. Well, please turn with, me to Mark chap- turn with me to Mark chapter 2 this morning. I remember back before I was married and was in Bible college, I did my taxes down at H&R Block and they were filling them out for me and I got the bill afterwards and I thought, next year, I'm doing my own taxes. I want to do it the cheapest way possible. So I went down to the library and I got the, the papers, you know, and I got all the, you got to make sure you get this schedule and that schedule and just, you know, and I, I sat down and I started looking at the lines and trying to understand it and pretty soon I realized I was over my head. So it wasn't going according to plan. And, uh, you know, one of the biggest anxieties about it is, you know, once, it's, it's one thing to like fold it up and put it in the envelope and put a stamp on it and send it out. But what, what's going to happen once it's received? You know, that, that's the big question, I guess. And, and there's so much anxiety with it. Uh, I ended up finding some additional assistance with some software to get, to not end up uh, in trouble then. But uh, in our text today, uh, we find the reason why we don't have to approach our relationship with God with that kind of anxiety, uh, the kind of anxiety that you might get with the IRS. Uh, a common thread that runs throughout really all religious systems in this world uh, is the need to do something good and be good enough if you want to access something good in the afterlife. It really, in one form or another, runs through uh, all religions of the world. Uh, and although Christianity, de- Christianity does not despise good works, uh, much the opposite, uh, the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ, even that we've been singing about so much this morning, is just how freely it comes to us, how freely it's given and how freely it's received. So let's turn to our text here. We'll be in Mark chapter 2. We'll read uh, verses 1 down through verse 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there, questioning in their hearts, Why does this man speak like this? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose 
and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they all were amazed and glorified God, saying, We never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, we could search the whole world over. And when we find you, Lord, we can say we've never seen anything like this. God, your work is unique and it is beautiful and it is amazing. Pray that you would help our hearts to appreciate what you have done for us. That you would give us thankfulness and praise, Lord, that would last into eternity. Pray that you would help our hearts as we grapple with your word this morning, that you would transform us by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we think through this text and and the way that Mark puts it before us here, I think the call for us as readers, as we're traveling along in this gospel and seeing who Jesus is, I think the text is calling us to trust the one who has the authority to forgive sins. Called to trust the one who has authority to forgive sins. I think we can see that as we walk through this. I want to take just a little bit of time to walk through and point out a couple details along the way in this story, and then I want to focus in on a couple things. You'll notice in verse 1, uh, it says, When he returned to Capernaum after some days. The chapter 1 in verse 21, Jesus is in Capernaum. He preaches in the synagogue, or he teaches there, confronted by a demon, and he casts this demon out. Later, he heals many, uh, and he announces in verse 39 that his mission is to go uh, elsewhere and to preach throughout Galilee, and uh, he does that. And, And again, last time we saw there's just one story that we're given in Mark's gospel at that time when Jesus is going throughout the villages at this point. Uh, That's the cleansing of the leper. And now we're back in Capernaum again. After some time, remember Jesus is out in the wilderness. He can't go into any town because his popularity has flared up and uh, he is wanting to wait till that cools down. Apparently it has. He comes back into Capernaum, but he's still quite popular. Uh, He's at home, it says here. Now, in Capernaum, there's... I've never been to Capernaum, but from what I have read and understand... There is a historical site there that people call Peter's house. Uh, Simon and Andrew uh, have a house here, and Simon Peter and, uh, and his brother Andrew, they have a house. They say historically this is the house. It's not far from the synagogue in town. There's no house of Jesus that's been excavated there. So likely, um, in reference to some of the things that Jesus says, that he has no place to lay his head, I would guess he probably wasn't a homeowner in Capernaum. He's probably living with Peter and his brother, Andrew. And uh, so I think that's the location of this story, where this is taking place. Uh, He's home, and a a large crowd gathers together here. And it's a packed house. Uh, Jesus is inside, He's, he's preaching, and people are coming. And they're sitting around the house, and they're filling up, every nook and cranny that you can to the point that people are standing maybe at the door and then probably with an earshot outside the door and there is no way to get in. I mean, it is, it is full and people are coming and hearing him preach. Uh, 
then the, the story goes on, tells us that uh, these, these four men, they come carrying a paralyzed man on a cot. And of course, they get to the house, and they ain't getting in. <laughs> There's no way to get four grown men with somebody on a stretcher in through this crowd. And do they give up and go home? No, they immediately begin to hatch plan B. They get some rope, and they make their way to the roof. Uh, in the, the kinds of houses in this area, there would generally be staircases that would go up onto the roof. And you remember maybe laws from the Old Testament about parapets having uh, little banisters around so people don't fall off roofs. So you'd have a flat roof, and it would be the kind of place you'd go uh, if you want to get out of the, the dank house on the inside, you'd go up and you'd get some fresh air and some good sunlight. You know, people would essentially be like a deck. It'd be like a patio. People would go up there and they'd sit and they'd think and they'd rest. Those kinds of things. It was a pretty typical uh, rooftop experience, I guess. And uh, so they, they make their way up. They're on the roof and they begin to dig. Uh, Again, these houses, these flat roofs, there'd be, uh, you know, your four walls, and then you'd have main poles, these beams that go across the top, and then there'd be kind of a lattice work. There'd be smaller beams that go hash, uh, you know, going across the other way, and then thatch on top of that. Then they'd take mud, and they'd pack mud on there and to make a sealed-off kind of roof. And so these guys are getting up there, and they're digging through that. Uh, they're, they're beginning to root, remove, break up and remove mud and thatch and crossbars. I mean, they're making a hole big enough essentially to get a gurney down through it. Uh, I have to imagine that that would have made an incredible racket. And uh, I can imagine that Peter was terribly pleased about the whole thing. Uh, as, as Jesus is preaching, this is going on. Uh, I have to imagine there was some curiosity about the whole thing. Uh, and then sure enough, the roof gets opened up and uh, this man begins to get lowered down through this hole in the ceiling. Uh, all eyes are on him, watching him as he's brought down and he is settled down in front of Jesus uh, and uh, he, he's really the center of attention at this point. Now there is uh, something truly audacious about this whole thing. <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, uh, if you had been sitting there, you might have thought, well, if you wanted to get in, you could have got in earlier. You know, you, you can think about the people who had gotten there uh, earlier in the day and they're being interrupted. Um, but I, I think one of the lessons is that faith is so often audacious. Uh, and like the leper from the, the account we heard before this, uh, these men and this man is desperate. He was desperate to see Jesus. And so... Uh, the man reaches the ground, and he lays there. And he looks over to Jesus, and Jesus is looking at him. And, uh, you know, what's going to happen? That, that's quite a dramatic event. And, and he's sitting there. What I'd have to imagine people are wondering, what is Jesus going to say? What is he going to do? Uh, uh, I don't think anybody expected what came next. Jesus says, son, your sins are forgiven. That's quite shocking. I bet it was so silent at that point that you could have heard yourself breathe. And in that moment, Jesus perceives the thoughts of the scribes. It says that in verse 7 here. 
And if the whole event had not been surprising enough, Jesus verbally responds to the scribes' hidden questions. Verse 8 and following, uh, it says, Immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, he just speaks to them, Why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed, and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Uh, and Mark records for us the outcome of it. Uh, the man is healed. He gets up, and he goes out before everybody. And, and people are just enthralled. They're amazed. They are praising God for the things that he has done that morning. Uh, so this is a, a quick overview of our story. Uh, I want to zero in on just a, a couple things this morning here. Uh, first, and this is more of a side note, but I, I think we do want to see this. Uh, notice the persistence of this man's friends. Notice their persistence to bring their friend to Jesus. They don't give up. It would have been very easy to get to the crowd and, and give up. You know, maybe not today. Maybe he'll be in town another day. Uh, and they, they don't do that. They don't wait around. They don't chance on tomorrow. Uh, they, they continue uh, to pursue Jesus here. They wanted their friend to be well. And he was made whole through this, first in having his sins forgiven. Um, I, I think one of the things that we can learn from these friends is uh, our heart attitude towards the friends that God has given us, family members that God has given us, um, we can't uh, pick somebody up and physically take them to Jesus, but we can lift people up in prayer. Um, we can take people before God in prayer, and I think we should be persistent in it. I think we should be diligent in it. It's so easy. Uh, I look over my old prayer cards of people I was praying for. Some of them are still not believers, and yet I've given up praying for them. Uh, it, it's easy to, well, okay, this isn't going to happen. I'm going to stop praying about it. I don't think we should do that. Uh, I uh, speak a hard word on myself, first of all, in that. We want to persist in praying for people that God brings to our attention in our lives to continue to bring them before the Lord uh, and to continue in that. We do want, as we're able to, <clears throat> to speak of the Lord to them, to continue to do that. They may reject our gospel appeal on the first and the tenth time, but who knows? While there's life, uh, we can continue to speak of this Jesus. We want to persist in it. Uh, I think that's more of a side note in this passage, but I think we want to see that as we move through. Uh, and, and getting to more specifically, I think the direct point of this passage, we want to notice that Jesus has authority over sin. In Mark's Gospel, we continue to see <clears throat> that Jesus, he's the Son of God. We see his authority in his teaching, unlike the scribes. He has authority over demons, that when even a demon-possessed man challenges Jesus, uh, he's ready to, to respond, and the demon obeys. Uh, he has authority to heal and to cleanse, and we will continue to see the kind of authority he has, but at this point, Mark is drawing our attention to the fact that Jesus has authority over sin. Even more audacious than the faith of these men is what Jesus says 
about sin. He tells this man that his sins are forgiven simply in light of the faith he displays. The question that the scribes raise is a fair question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In fact, I think there's a lot of truth in that question, even if they misunderstand who Jesus is. Who can forgive sins but God? I think that question rightly implies something about the nature of sin. That is that sin is personal. Sin is always personal. As we look at the scriptures, we see that sin is an affront to God. Uh, Only God can truly forgive sins. Now, it's right for us, if we offend one another, to apologize, to extend forgiveness. We do that as a reflection of the forgiveness we've received from God. But God is the one, the only one, who can forgive sins uh, completely uh, and uh, free people from that. In, in Psalm 51.4, it's striking David, after having uh, had uh, Bathsheba's husband murdered, essentially, after he had committed adultery, He will cry out to God in Psalm 51, 4, Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Well, David has sinned against a lot of people, all sorts of people. And if if we begin to go beyond those first two uh, heinous acts of sin, he's actually sinned against a lot more people than just the two of them. But he says, Against you and you only have I sinned. How can he say that? I think part of that is, Every single sin, whatever type it is, is always first against God. When we do harm to a brother or a sister, we are doing harm to the one who has made that brother or sister. Uh, we, we sin against God first, even as we do sin against other people. Sin is personal, and it's against God. I think if we misunderstand that, I think the whole scope of the Bible makes less sense to us if we don't get that point. I think, in fact, a lot of people in our society at large struggle to understand why God cares so much about what we do. I've heard this all my life. People say, well, nobody's perfect. Is that supposed to be comforting? (laughs) Uh, The problem with that mentality when the inference is, well, nobody's perfect, so it's going to be okay, Uh, is that God doesn't grade on a curve. Uh, He doesn't just accept folks because they made something of a good go at it when it comes to righteousness. People understand both the personal nature of sin and the seriousness of sin. We don't want to think about our sin uh, maybe like we think about our appendix. If you'll follow me for a little bit on this. talking about the organ, the appendix, not the, the extra chapter in the back of the book that you might not read. Uh, the appendix as an organ is located in the lower right side of your abdomen. Uh, it extends beyond your large intestine. Uh, the thing that the appendix is most known for is, in my knowledge at least, it's most known for going bad. Uh, and if it does, you get appendicitis. And if you get appendicitis, it can kill you. Uh, Now, everybody's born with an appendix, and only some people are going to need to have some sort of a medical intervention to save their lives and have it removed. 
Uh, as I've talked with unbelievers, I, I found that maybe this is a parallel to how some people think about sin. You know, people might admit, well, sure, we, we all have sin. Some people might even admit, well, we're, we're sure we're born with sin. Uh, yes, it can be a problem. You know, you've got those really bad sinners out there. Um, but maybe I'm somebody who won't have an issue with it. Uh, I don't need to trust in Jesus because maybe I'm going to make it. Maybe I don't need any intervention. Uh, but that is not how sin works. It's not something that we're merely born with, and we are born with sin. Uh, it's something we actively pursue. Sin is something that comes out of the heart. It's something that absolutely will be a problem, and it's something that's opposed to God. Another difference is that there's no doctor in the world who has the right to be offended with you because you've got an appendix. Now, how dare you have an appendix? No doctor cares. In fact, it might make them some money. Uh, it's a completely different equation when it comes to God. God has a good reason to be offended with sin. Our whole existence is in the context of the world that God has made. He has specifically made us for himself. He has made us to enjoy him and to glorify him with our whole lives. God created us for himself. We were meant to dwell with him in fellowship, to worship him, to do the things that he's given us to do, and to uh, glorify him. But humanity decided that it wanted to do something better, wanted something better. Our first parents doubted God's goodness and truthfulness and decided to pursue their own perception of good. They turned their backs on the eternally good and happy God and away from the one who was their source of happiness. They snatched what they wanted on their own terms and it cost them everything. And human beings have been living that out ever since. Still today, people pursue their definition of good. So often, that does not have God at the center. But God, our creator, made this world, and especially us, for himself. Because of that, our sin is not merely doing something wrong. It is that, but it is personally against God. Sin is not like an appendix. It's not a potential liability, and it's not an impersonal part of every person. Sin is against God, and it is serious. So, it's no wonder that the scribes would question in their hearts, who can forgive sins but God alone? They charge Jesus with blaspheming because they believe that he is arrogating to himself something that is not his authority to have. But they're wrong. Jesus has the right to forgive sins. He says here that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Son of Man is the Son of God, as Mark has made clear at a few different points already. As the Son of God, he is God. Jesus can personally forgive sins. But there's more here. He also has the right to forgive sins because he's going to pay for those sins on the cross. The mission of Jesus right now, as we see it in Mark's gospel, is to go out and preach. That's what he's sent to do. Uh, he's, he's preaching throughout Galilee. That mission to preach is going to turn into a mission to head towards Jerusalem, as we see, as we're going to see. 
and he's going to head to the cross. There, he's going to offer himself up as that Passover lamb to avert the wrath of God from sinners who lay claim to him, who put the blood of that lamb on their hearts. He will wipe clean the record of our debt. He will take upon himself the punishment that we have accrued. He will let the prisoners go free. He will reconcile us to God and God to us. He will secure our adoption. He will win a bride for himself. And by his blood, he will ransom people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Jesus will secure the right for God to forgive sins in a way that glorifies his justice perfectly. And so Jesus does, in fact, have the right to forgive sins. As much as the scribes thought, this is blasphemy. He has every right to forgive sins. He has the total right to forgive sins. The scribes may have refused the testimony of Scripture. They may have refused the things that were happening right before their eyes. But that doesn't take one bit away from Jesus and his authority. The miracle of healing this man and raising him up off his bed here is to point to the fact that he does have the authority to forgive sins. Now, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or rise, pick up your bed, and walk? Well, in one sense, you know, who can verify at that moment whether this man's sins are forgiven or not? It's a little difficult to verify at the moment. It's pretty easy to verify if he gets up and walks or not. That is immediately verifiable. At the same time, actual forgiveness is uh, infinitely harder than healing. And a normal man can't do either, let's be honest. Not like this. But Jesus, the Son of God, is no normal man. He is man, yes, fully man. But he is also the eternal Son of God, and he can both forgive sins and heal paralysis. This morning, are you resting in the certainty of forgiveness for yourself personally? Are you resting in that certainty? Do you have confidence that your sins will not rise up and condemn you in the judgment? If so, what are you trusting in? Are you hoping that your sin will be small enough and maybe won't cause you problems? Are you hoping that God will perhaps let it slide for some reason? If so, I would ask you not to believe or hope in a myth. We don't want to believe in pretty lies. We don't want to wager our eternity and our souls on our own ability. There is a rock-solid hope in Jesus Christ. God would not have worked out a plan over thousands of years, the way that he did, he would not have done that, culminating in the death of his son Jesus and his resurrection, just to go back on his promise. Could you really believe that he would do all of this and then decide, well, no, I don't think so? I want to ask again, are you resting this morning in the forgiveness of Jesus Christ? He is trustworthy. He is worthy of our trust. You know, we sometimes make promises that we can't deliver on. We find that we're not adequate for the task. God never fails in his promises. He never has, and he never will. He has the eternal power to make sure that he never fails 
in doing the very things that he promises. Jesus endured the cross, despising the shame for the joy set before him. Will he turn back on what he has promised if he has gone that far? He won't. He will see your salvation through. And he has every right and intention to forgive anyone who comes to him in faith. If we're going to be audacious, let us be audacious in our trust of this Savior and in his ability to save. Let's trust the one who actually has the authority to forgive our sins. Let's go in prayer together. Uh, Eric, if you would come to play and the men would get ready for communion, we'll, we'll pray now.